This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. Now we've all faced some of the most trying times ever recently, haven't we? And perhaps many of us out there are still finding some things difficult. It may not necessarily be the fallout from the pandemic. All sorts of things come to try us, don't they? And they can weigh on you heavily. Personally, in the past year, aside from being separated from the people closest to me, I've suffered bereavement, had to adapt to a drastic work pattern change, and whilst dealing with these, on top of ensuring that I'm there for those closest to me, doing what I can for them as best as I can be, I don't mind saying that at times, it's been a tough one. So, if something is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your wants or your goals, then perhaps better help can help you. Now it's not self-help that's being advocated here. When approaching BetterHelp, what it does is assesses whatever issues you may be facing and calling on its broad range of expertise available with specialists in a vast range of issues and some of which you may not have locally available to you. BetterHelp then matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling and one selected that best suits your needs. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with your own selected personal counsellor in a confidential online environment. A counsellor you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, can message anytime you want or feel, and from whom you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. It's a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling. It's available worldwide, so clients anywhere can use it if they wish. And if it's needed, even has financial aid available for the use of better help. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where each time around me and the peaks have curated a tale sometimes obscure, forgotten, sometimes unbelievable of some of the darkest deeds from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You folks are the wonderful enthusiasts who make the show so worthwhile and my passion. It's as fabulous as it always is having you here joining me today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And it goes without saying, and I hope that as you join me for the episode, then you and those that mean the world to you are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. 
So we're on the downward stages of the thriller arc right now, which we shall get right back into shortly. Firstly though, massive thanks out for the feedback and shares of the thriller arc to date. It's so kind of you to do that is all. As well as a big thank you going out to both my return and the new Patreon supporters, with shoutouts this time around going out to Jane, Katie Wyatt, Eleanor Graham, Sheila Morris, Ayn Sweeney, Victoria Herrington, Johannes Nilsson, and Arlene Ogston. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. It's so much appreciated folks, thank you so much, and I hope that you've managed to start making your way through the plethora of bonus episodes that you have available for you. Now I've already selected the case for tale number 44, and look out for that coming at the end of the month. Now if you're curious about the tales behind bonus episode titles such as Ripper in the Making, or The Madness at Mother Max, Pierpoint's Last Drop, or Operation Magnesium, and that's just a couple of the unreleased bonus tales, then you can be like this kind lot and hearing them for yourselves very simply and very reasonably also. Just seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site and go from there, or there's a clickable link in this and every episode show notes that takes you right to it. Now we shall begin, because I'm itching to, following a short word from the episode sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiend, the game which the fun never stops with, it really doesn't. If you're like me and you like a mix of a puzzle game that makes you think a couple of moves ahead, and an enjoyable bit of a romp that always feels fun to play and doesn't wind you up, then look no further than Best Fiends. You'll find it's the game for you if you're tired of the same old puzzle games. It's really so much more than your average, and I'm hundreds of levels up in it right now. In Best Fiends, you'll find and use a whole variety of colourful little characters, each with their own unique little skills, like Beebert or Wilbur, as you travel through the varying zones and lands of Minutia on a quest to rid it of the slugs that have taken over it, destroying everything in your path, and nothing safe, from starfish to beach balls, slime to crates, there are all sorts of things, nothing is safe in order to do so. It always looks a slick game to play, it always feels fresh, I'm forever noticing something new with it, be it new challenges, new events, and always constantly new levels, and as a result, I'm constantly enjoying playing it. I often think to myself when I have a bit of downtime from doing the show, I'll just move up a level here in it, and before you know it, I've instead done five or six of them, and absolutely ages has gone by. What's great about it also is that you can also share your progress on the Best Fiends leaderboard with your friends and family to see how they're doing on it. Or why not, like I do, just enjoy playing it by yourself, which you can do anytime, anywhere, because you don't even need to be connected online to enjoy Best Fiends. You'll soon be hooked, trust me. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Right then, let's grab the bull by the bollocks and get on with the arc. Now if you aren't up to speed on our tale so far, I would advise that you go and catch up with the tale to date, because if you haven't, this part will make very little sense. Now I shouldn't have to say that really, because I think that's quite self-explanatory, but believe me, I have had people get in touch in the past concerning multi-part episodes, who say dense things like, Is there a part one? Yes, of course there's a part one. I bet your mum was a good weightlifter because she'd have to be to raise a fucking dumbbell like you. 
So if we're up to speed then, after that short digress, a recap so far on Thriller. We've heard of the exploits of the two men, taller and shorter as we've come to know them, and the horror they brought from 1982 onwards, beginning with a series of rapes. We've heard of three horrific murders committed by the pair, and we've heard of the massive resulting investigation that left no stone unturned, and in the previous episode, we heard how police were even willing to use a then-untested method of investigation, the psychological profile, and the fabulous results that it brought, that when its observations were applied, identified a man who went from number 1,594 on the suspect list to number one, with him matching 13 out of the 17 points offered on the profile. He ticked box after box after box on it, and after looking at him closely, tailing him around the clock, he was finally arrested and charged with a series of rapes and the murders of Alison Day, Marchi Tamboza, and Anne Locke, being committed for trial at the Old Bailey to begin in January 1988. His name? John Francis Duffy. Now we left him parked on remand last time, so let's see what transpired when his trial began. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the sixth part of the Thriller arc, an episode I've entitled, The Man with the Laser Eyes. The trial of John Francis Duffy began on Tuesday the 12th of January 1988 in court number one of the Old Bailey and was expected to last some six weeks, but it was somewhat overshadowed by the fact that at the same court, on the same day, the trial of another infamous British killer was beginning, one who we met some years ago in the very first series of The Enthusiast in the show's first ever two-part episode, Kenneth Erskine, The Stockwell Strangler. Still in the back catalogue, that one is, folks. Duffy was charged with the murders of Alison Day, Martia Tamboza and Anne Locke, as well as seven rapes, one including a count of buggery, these including the attack at Hadley Wood in February 1985, the Copdall rape in November 1985, the Watford rape in October 1986, the rapes in conjunction with another man, at West Hampstead Station on the 3rd of June 1984, and at Kentish Town on the 14th of July 1985, the sexual attack on his wife, and the assault occasioning actual bodily harm on both Margaret Duffy and her boyfriend, Imri Lovas. When asked how he pleaded to each of the charges, in a clear, softly spoken voice, Duffy replied, Not guilty. Now the press made an application at the beginning of the trial to name Duffy as the accused, although a defendant accused of rape will habitually remain anonymous until any guilty verdict is reached. And this was permitted by the presiding judge, Mr Justice Farquharson, on the grounds that because the defendant was allegedly involved in three murders also, cases that had gripped the public interest, then a very different light was cast on the matter. This was argued against by David Farrington QC for the defence on the basis that by doing so would bring suffering to Duffy's family 
due to the amounts of publicity the offences are detracted. Tough. Anthony Hooper QC for the prosecution opened the trial by describing to the jury the catalogue of offences, whilst pointing out that the main crux of evidence against the defendant would come from the cases of Martia Tamboza and Alison Day. He painted a picture of Duffy as, I quote, He is a man who plans and knows what he is doing with militaristic precision. Faced with crimes as horrible as these, perhaps it's natural for people to say, you couldn't do this unless you're sick. But he has nothing to do with sick. He is certainly not inadequate or a backward person. He is a shrewd and calculating killer and rapist. I'm always impressed with the grasp of language these legal eagles have. The way they always put stuff so wonderfully. I'd love to sit and watch a trial, I really would. Sat in the dock, flanked by three prison officers and dressed in the dark suit he was to wear throughout the proceedings, emotionless, was John Francis Duffy. Mr Hooper went on to describe to the jury Duffy's life, his interests, and then delivered pointers of the profile created by Professor Cantor, highlighting each of the points that Duffy fitted. He introduced a fearsome-looking collection of weapons as exhibits, the pornography and video nasties found at Duffy's home, the somyarn string, the selection of door keys that were found, and the Swan Vesta matchbox stuffed with tissues, asking the jury, what could this be other than this man's rape kit? It was ready for another rape or murder. He then also told the jury that the only defence Duffy was offering would be claiming amnesia, which the Crown claimed was, I quote, a total sham, pointing out the highly suggestible coincidence that amnesia had first occurred on the very same day he'd been questioned by detectives from Operation Trinity, and that following his release from hospital, he had returned to a video club where he held a membership in a false name, and was able to recall that name no problem, plus had been able to demonstrate complicated karate pattern sets and moves absolutely fine from memory afterwards. Mr. Hooper said, The amnesia is a total sham. He is pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. It is made up so he does not have to answer the numerous questions police put to him. One of the first to appear before the court as a witness was Duffy's now ex-wife, 25-year-old former nursery nurse Margaret, who told the court that following their marriage in June 1980, the relationship had steadily declined due to his violence, despite attempts at reconciliation, and by April 1985, I quote, We got to the stage where I could not stand looking at him or him touching me. Having been told several times to speak up by both counsel and Mr Justice Farquharson, gripping the rail of the dock and staring straight ahead, refusing to look at her ex-husband, she explained further, his moods were very changeable and he could change from one minute to the next. John can be really, really nice when he wants to be and then with no reason, he can be like a raving madman. He isn't stupid, he's quite intelligent. His eyes are very scary, you couldn't stare at him. If you looked at him, you would have to look away. Once you've seen his eyes, you would remember them. Sometimes when you look at a person, you can see what they're feeling, whether they're feeling sorrow or hurt. But with him, 
you didn't know what he was thinking. Margaret continued that her former husband had discovered that he was infertile in 1982 and had even attempted suicide twice following this. The violence had now increased in the relationship and following Duffy being sacked from his job with British Rail in 1982 for poor timekeeping, he made no attempt to try and find work and instead, as Margaret worked extra to support them, he lounged about watching porn or films as Margaret described with killings and blood everywhere. She told the court of his large collection of weapons, how he had, I quote, quite a selection of knives, pen knives and big knives with big blades. He used to carry a razor blade in a brass casing. His main obsession seemed to be fitness. He would be out jogging for hours at a time and either at classes learning or at home practicing his martial arts obsessing over powerful and paralyzing holds that he'd learned and practiced from the arts of Hapkido or Zen Budo, with Margaret often being the unwilling recipient of these. Other times, it was mere unbridled, undisguised domestic violence that she would suffer. Yet he would still expect sex almost every night. Margaret told the court, He wanted sex every night. We used to fight about it. In fact, the marriage was constant fighting. I used to try and stop him, but in the end, I used to give in. He used to hit me. Sometimes he would tie my hands behind my back with my dressing gown cord. I was frightened at first, but he appeared to enjoy it. If I didn't protest at all, he would lose interest. But if I was struggling, he would get more and more aroused. She also repeated the claim she had told police following Duffy's arrest that he had once told her that he had raped someone, saying, He told me, I raped a girl tonight, and it was all your fault. He said she'd enjoyed it, and asked him to come back. I didn't believe it. Then he produced a personal stereo and said, Where do you think I've got this from? He blamed me, because I would not respond to him. It was all my fault. By November 1984, the couple had separated and Duffy had moved out, going to live back with his parents. They'd attempted yet another reconciliation at Christmas of that year, but things hadn't improved, and by June 1985, the day after a party had been held for them to celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary, Margaret had left him for good, moving out of the Barlow Road flat. She would periodically go back around there to collect items of clothing or important mail, and she then described to the court an alarming event that had occurred on one of these visits. John was being friendly, he claimed to have made some cakes, and there was something that he wanted me to try. He asked me to close my eyes and open my mouth, which I did, and then he pushed a handkerchief down my mouth while he was holding my throat. Then he apologised and said he didn't know what came over him. I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah, you're best off out of a relationship like that, aren't you? Now Margaret had found happiness with someone else, Hungarian-born Umre Lovas, two months after leaving Duffy. And when he'd found out about this, he'd threatened to visit Umre, leading to Margaret agreeing to his demands to meet him in a Hendon Park. As we've heard, when she did so, he punched her in the face, blackening her eye, 
and had then raped her at knife point. That same evening, the 28th of August, he'd followed her back to the home of her new boyfriend, had forced his way in, and armed with a spring-loaded cosh and a knife, had assaulted both of them, causing serious head wounds. Mr Lovass, who was also to give evidence to the court, described, He hit me with a knife on the temple. I had to have eight stitches. The prosecution concluded the questioning of Margaret by asking her what she thought of Duffy's amnesia claim, to which Margaret replied, I never believed John had amnesia. I still don't believe he's got amnesia. John is a very clever man. When it came to the defence questioning, meanwhile, she received an extremely aggressive cross-examination, and one that suggested all sorts. From claims that she'd been back regularly for sex with Duffy on at least four or five occasions since she'd left him, through to her deliberately breaking the injunction she'd obtained against him, and even the suggestion that she was an attention seeker who was adding arms and legs onto her story to sensationalise it because she'd been offered large sums of money by the press to do so. Now Margaret admitted contacting Duffy after the injunction granted, but only to get him to stop pestering her. She also admitted that her mother had been offered money by the press for her exclusive story, but only after she had made her full police statements. But she had certainly never visited him for sex after they'd separated, and as for the story she'd told in court, there was no sensationalism to it whatsoever. It was the simple truth. A point to note here, the following day, the evidence Margaret had given was used almost verbatim by a tabloid newspaper as an exclusive interview form, and was accompanied by a photograph of her leaving court. The newspaper received a contempt of court charge for this, and the photographer was subsequently fined and bound over for a year at a later hearing. The prosecution had next called 20-year-old Ross Mockeridge, who told the court that previously he had written a reference for Duffy, which read as follows. I would like to say I've never met a nicer man. He's never shown any signs of a suspect temper in my company. Neither has he ever done anything in my presence to suggest violence. On the contrary, he has a quiet, peaceful, non-violent nature. He is very definitely not a person to provoke anyone. He's always been helpful and friendly. I love the man as a brother and would do anything for him, more or less. But this nice person that he'd written this for, on one occasion Mockeridge told the court, when they'd noticed a woman on the opposite side of the street, Duffy had said to him, Come on, let's go and rape her. Mockeridge had of course refused this, leading Duffy to remark, You mean you would not want to drag her off to some bushes and give her one? Now this wasn't a one-off thing either. Mockeridge then confessed to the court that on several occasions, Duffy had spoken to him about rape, saying that if he ever thought of doing it, he should tell him, and more than once saying, Rape is a natural thing for a man to think about. Is that absolutely abhorrent, isn't it, eh? What a terrible, terrible statement. Mockeridge then told the court the account of how he had assisted in Duffy's plan to fake amnesia, 
describing how he inflicted the injuries to Duffy on the 17th of July 1986, saying, I said I didn't want to do it, but he said I had to help him as his life was at stake. Although I was extremely frightened of the consequences, John handed me the razor. As he was talking, I got him with the razor, so it was not as painful as much as if he was bracing himself for it. There was a slashing movement on his chest through his shirt. First, John didn't think he'd been cut at all. Then, he put his fingers through his torn shirt and pulled at the wound with his finger. I saw the wound was fairly deep. I was very shocked and said, Oh God, what have I done? John said that no, it was good, and that I then had to hit him. I hit him on both sides of the face weakly, but John said I had to hit him harder than that. I hit him around the eye and made him stagger back. I was concerned about him and asked him if he was alright, but he said it was good. Mockeridge further claimed that Duffy had then given him £100 for doing this, and then said, I quote, He was going into hospital and make out he'd lost his memory. He rejected claims from the defence that he was a lonely, introverted fantasist who had made up this story, the fact that he'd only given this to police in stages as ample suggestion that he had time to think it up, saying, I reject that completely. I am on oath in this court, and I reject that completely. Because of our friendship, it would have been extremely difficult to give all of my evidence about him to the police in one go. Impressing the jury with his honest, genuine account, Mockeridge also remarked, It was difficult to come to terms with what John was accused of. Because of my great friendship and feelings for him, I tried to protect him at first. Now, there were several other witnesses to give evidence before the court, including Duffy's former martial arts instructor, David Archer, who demonstrated to the court how some of the fearsome-looking weaponry that had been produced as exhibits was designed to be used. And describing Duffy as a student, told the court that he was somewhere in the middle, not quick, but not slow either. Mr Archer described how he'd first met Duffy in January 1985, when he had changed instructors and begun attending the Tunbridge Youth Club for lessons. Over the next 18 months, taught by Mr Archer, Duffy had learned all manner of nerve and strangleholds, and had practised a variety of arts including Habkido and Zen Budo, a combination of jiu-jitsu and weaponry. Although Duffy had even helped him move locations to be able to teach his classes at the Kilburn Community Centre, as Duffy was part of the management committee there, David Archer was to claim, I never got to know him very well, he never really talked. Another witness was Susan Donoghue, the woman who had been so intimidated by the man with the staring eyes on the train she was on on Christmas Eve that she'd gotten off at Homerton Station and pretended that a commuter on the platform there was her husband, who told the court of this sighting and that although she had not reported the incident initially, she had subsequently contacted the police at both West Hampstead and Notting Hill following appeals on television about the murder of Alison Day. However, no action had been taken when she did, but following the Crime Watch appeals for all three of the murder cases, she had again chased this up and reported her sighting, and this time a statement had been taken from her. 
after Duffy was charged with the offences and remanded in custody. In March 1987, she had attended an identity parade with him on it and had picked him out as the man she had seen. But undoubtedly, the witnesses who left the most impression on the jury were the rape victims themselves, who each bravely appeared to give their evidence, not all being able to even glance across at the accused in the dock. The court was shown videos of the identity parades that the victims in the attacks at West Hampstead Railway Station in June 1984 and the attack in Kentish Town on the 13th of July 1985 had attended seeing how each clearly picked out Duffy with no hesitation, and when they came in person to describe their horrific ordeal, each did so in almost a whisper, so traumatic was it for them to relive. Now we heard details of these and all of the attacks in the Two Bodies with One Brain episode, so I won't be retelling them here in detail also, but each attack was then bravely recounted now to the court by the victim. One of the women told the court that even two and a half years later, she was still suffering the physical effects of the attack. Horrendous that, isn't it, eh? Absolutely terrible. There are simply no words. The young nurse who was raped at Hadley Wood in February 1985, meanwhile, was so distressed when she gave evidence before the court that a 10 minute adjournment had to be called for to give her time to compose herself with her being comforted by an usher, as was the same case with the woman raped behind Coptal Sports Centre in November of the same year. Now this victim was further upset when challenged by Mr Farrington about the fact that she'd failed to identify Duffy as her attacker a month after the attack, but was clearer and had done so a year later. Though his attempted point was rendered moot when medical evidence was presented to the court which explained that the woman had been suffering from rape trauma syndrome, a symptom of which can be that a victim's experience can vanish from their memory, only to return in detail some time later. Now, I can't even begin to imagine what it must feel like to have to relive such a horrendous ordeal in court, to have to recount things like, I quote, He said, If you struggle or make a noise, I will slash your throat. Because that must bring such awful deeds right back, mustn't it? And to be even willing to do so must take unbelievable courage, of course it must, which all of the victims displayed here make no mistake. But perhaps none more so than the final rape victim to give her evidence, the girl who had been raped at Watford in October 1986. Not only had she already displayed this courage when she'd identified Duffy at an identity parade without hesitation in November 1986, but she now, aged 15 and accompanied by her mother, told the court of her ordeal, claiming that on her way home from school, she was followed through two subways near to the A41 and leading onto Russell Lane by a man walking fast behind her. The girl continued, I was a bit nervous, I kept looking behind me because I was scared. He kept looking at me and was chewing bubblegum. Caught up with me and asked me the time. I said, sorry I haven't, and he walked past me. He then swung around and grabbed me. He put one hand over my mouth and pushed me to the floor. She then recounted her horrific ordeal. Such an impression did she leave on the court 
that Mr. Justice Farquharson addressed her new mother, telling them, Thank you for bringing your daughter to court. She's done very well and has been very brave. So now the prosecution turned to the three murders. The circumstances of each murder, as we've heard in the respective episodes for each, were relayed, and Dr. Peter Venezes' findings on the method of strangulation, the unique, horrific Spanish windlass method of tourniquet that had been used to kill both Alison Day and Marcia Tamboza, were related to the court, with Mr. Hooper telling them, With this extraordinary manner of strangulation, you can imagine that you get a tremendous amount of pressure. Now, whilst the evidence was strong to tie Duffy to March's murder, there was the blood grouping, a size 4 shoe print found near the body that was quite small for a man, but it was the exact size that Duffy was, the Somyarn string that was found, etc. The evidence to connect him to Allison's murder had rested largely on fibre evidence. As you may recall, five sets of alien fibres had been lifted from the sheepskin coat Alison had been wearing that had been weighted down and submerged. And when Duffy had been arrested in November 1986, over 70 different items of his clothing had been seized and examined. Now about half of these were manufactured from material that would not shed fibre evidence, but of the remainder that fibres could be shed from, several samples had been removed from each of the items for comparison and the laborious process of checking these against the alien fibres removed from Allison's coat had begun. Some 2,000 plus fibres had to be tested. Detective Superintendent Farquhar had specifically asked for this fibre evidence, having told his team, find fibres that match, and it's as good as a fingerprint. And just a few weeks before Duffy's trial was due to begin, there was a breakthrough. Dr. Jeffrey Rowe and his team had identified fibres found on Allison's clothing to be microscopically indistinguishable from a sweater belonging to John Duffy. 13 different fibres. So then this finding was now produced to the court, and along with the evidence in the murder of Marcia, that's a good two for two. But on the 10th of February, by this time well into the fifth week of the trial, the murder charge against Anne Locke that Duffy was facing was dropped. I know, yeah. Let me explain. Because of the distinct lack of forensic evidence that could be gleaned from Anne's body, the case against him was weak. The only possible evidence against Duffy was the fact that the youth who had spotted a man at Brookman's Park Station, who came out with a nonsense story about the air gun on the night Anne was killed, had positively identified him as being this man at a subsequent identity parade. So the strategy for the prosecution had always been to make a connection between Anne's murder and the other two deaths that Duffy was more heavily incriminated in, that suggested they were so similar that the same offender had to be responsible. Now I shall come on to Lawrence Locke shortly, but after the prosecution's case concerning Anne Locke's murder was presented to the court, Mr. Justice Farquharson paused proceedings for a 90-minute recession and sent the jury out. When they returned, he explained that he had spent the recess reviewing evidence and listening to legal submission, and told them, I quote, In the case of Mrs. Locke, I have come to the conclusion that as a matter of law, there is not sufficient evidence for you to bring in a matter of guilty in respect of that matter. In her case, 
you will recall that there is no direct evidence linking the killing with this defendant. The evidence on which prosecution were to rely was that they said the manner of the killing of Mrs Locke was so similar to that of the two other girls that it must be the same man. But in that particular case, that submission could not be justified. He then informed them that he would be directing them to find Duffy not guilty of the crime. Gutted, eh? Now this was to be the third blow for Lawrence Locke that the actions of the evil pair we've come to know had caused. Because not only had he of course lost his new wife of just four weeks at their hands, but when he'd arrived at the court to give his evidence the previous day, he had done so with his 66-year-old father, Alfred Locke, who was there in company to support his son. Advised not to spectate on proceedings due to the distressing nature of the evidence, Alfred had instead sat in the gallery of court number two whilst Lawrence was being cross-examined. Now by all accounts this was quite brutal again from the defence and Lawrence showed the understandable strain and distress that he was under as he relived his worst nightmare. But things were about to get worse for him, if you can even believe that. After Lawrence had given evidence for about an hour, a clerk entered the court and passed a note to Mr Justice Farquharson, who halted proceedings immediately after reading it. He then told Lawrence Locke, Your father has been taken to Bart's hospital. I think you should go there straight away. He is very grave. Alfred Locke had shortly before come out of court number two feeling unwell and had collapsed outside. As an ambulance was summoned, Police officers David Ashley and Kate Collins had immediately performed CPR on him until its arrival, and once he'd been dispatched to St. Bart's, Lawrence Locke was notified. By all accounts, he rushed out of the court when told, hardly even being officially excused, to get to his father. But sadly, it was too late. By the time Lawrence Locke had gotten to the hospital, Alfred Locke had been pronounced dead having had a massive heart attack. He had explained only moments before he had collapsed the amount of strain his family had been under. How utterly tragic, eh? Poor, poor family. The ripples of evil truly do spread far, don't they? With the prosecution's case presented then, the defence could offer very little. It had been said by David Farrington at the onset of the trial that the accused would not be taking the witness stand as he had offered a defence of amnesia, which had been accepted by the prosecution. Now this had been refuted as a shamble of bollocks by the prosecution, granted, but to try and strengthen this claim, the defence produced a doctor who had treated Duffy during his stay at Fryne Hospital, Dr John Hailstone, who told the court that during his time there as a patient, Duffy had been administered sodium pentothal, which he'd agreed to take as part of his treatment. Dr. Hailstone claimed, If he was faking amnesia, I would have thought it less likely that he would agree to take the drug. If you have something to hide, you are rather less likely to take it. It would increase the likelihood that the amnesia was genuine. It was about the only witness the defence could call. The mainstay of the defence case seemed to have been simply refuting every witness called as mistaken or lying, unable to do anything else with Duffy claiming amnesia. 
In his closing speech to the court, Mr. Farrington could offer no mitigating circumstances whatsoever and merely told the jury, I throw this man at your mercy. Mr. Hooper, conversely, had plenty he could say in his closing address. He recapped confidently point after point that the court had heard pointing to Duffy's culpability in the crimes, listed all of the evidence suggesting this, recapped all of the witness testimony, and concluded to the jury in a recap of his opening address several weeks before. Ladies and gentlemen, he is a shrewd, sharp, calculating killer and rapist. On the 23rd of February 1986, beginning his own summing up, Mr Justice Farquharson told the jury that in his 35 years legal experience, he had never had a case where in one indictment there had been charges of two murders and seven rapes. Appreciating the gravity and horror of the crimes, he told them, You must put all strong feelings of emotion to one side and coldly, clinically decide on the evidence. Late in the day on Thursday the 25th of February, the jury of six men and six women returned unanimous verdicts of guilty in the rape cases at Hadley Wood Station in February 1985 and the Watford attack in October 1986 and were then sent to a hotel for the evening to await continuing their deliberations on the remaining charges the following day. When the Friday came around, after more deliberation, some 14 hours of it in total, they had unanimously found John Francis Duffy guilty of a total of five counts of rape, the Coptall, West Hampstead and Kentish Town offences being added to the two the previous day, as well as guilty of the murders of Alison Day and Martia Tamboza. The other offences Duffy had been charged with, including the offences against his ex-wife and her boyfriend, were left to remain on file. As the verdict was returned, Duffy's broken mother Philomena's sobs could be heard echoing around the courtroom. Now so harrowing had the trial been, and you can't barely imagine can you hearing evidence like, oh, it doesn't even bear thinking about. It had been so harrowing that it had taken its toll on the jury, and one female member had even been hospitalised on the trial's final day, so before passing sentence on Duffy, Mr Justice Farquharson thanked the jury for their services, adding that he understood how much hearing details of the offences had affected them, and excused them from any further jury service for the rest of their lives. And then, it was time to deal with the parasite now stood in the dock, staring blankly ahead, motionless. Addressing Duffy, Mr Justice Farquharson told him, you are obviously little more than a predatory animal who attacked young girls in a degrading and disgusting way. The two murders were as appalling as anything I have come across. The wickedness and beastliness of the murders committed on those two very young girls hardly bears description. You cut short those two young lives and blighted the lives of all the families of those young girls. Sentencing Duffy to life imprisonment on each count of rape and murder to run concurrently, the judge added, I recommend that you serve at least a minimum of 30 years having regard to the horrific nature of the crimes, but you should not depend on that being the total you will serve, it may well be more. 
with a brief glance at his family, his mother Philomena, his father John, his elder sister Susan and his younger brother Jimmy, who'd been sat in the public gallery throughout the trial. Duffy hardly registered any emotion at the brief wave back from his mother and the thumbs up sign from Susan. They were allowed a brief reunion with him in the cells underneath the court, but what would you even say at such a time? And then he was off to begin his life sentence, reportedly in a segregation cell at Her Majesty's Prison Wormwood Scrubs. A multiple sex attacker and double killer wouldn't be the most popular in prison, would they? His shell-shocked family, meanwhile, could hardly even begin to come to terms to even believe that he was capable of such appalling crimes, even when a barrister told them moments after he was sentenced. You must understand that you will never see your son again outside of prison. I mean, how would you even begin to come to terms with hearing that? His father John was quoted in the press after the verdict as saying, My heart goes out to those women and to the parents of the two dead girls. I could picture what it could be like if it was my girl. I know how I would feel. I am terribly sorry. I would like to say that to them, but I still don't believe it was my lad. To do these things he must have been sick, because he would not do them with a sane mind. He is a God-fearing man. He's a monstrously evil killer and rapist, is what he is. Praise was heaped by the judge on the inquiry team of Operation Trinity for their efforts in bringing Duffy to justice, with Detective Superintendents Farquhar and Hurst especially singled out for their leadership, determination and forward thinking. It was a good result, yet two things must have smarted to officers. That there was still one of the pair out there, although confident they knew who he was, but unable to prove it enough to bring charges. And of course, that Duffy was never convicted for the murder of Anne Locke, with them knowing that he was responsible. As good as saying this, Detective Superintendent Hurst was quoted thus, following the verdict. We are not looking for anyone else. We have closed the file on the Anne Locke case. Duffy was our man. I'm not surprised by the lack of emotion from him in court today. He is a very intelligent, cold and calculating person. Now he was to add much later, I quote, In my 22 years experience with crime, I have never found a man so calculating and cunning. He gave me the impression of being able to react to any type of situation in which he found himself. He's not said a great deal from beginning to end, and I do not believe we will ever know exactly what he's responsible for. I went to see Duffy after the trial, and found that he was quite happy to do 30 years because he wanted to shut himself off from the rest of the world. He did not show the slightest remorse for what he'd done. He loved all the attention he was getting. It was just a big ego trip for him. The man is just a cold, calculating killer, and enjoyed what he did. He was the most evil man I have ever met. The officer who had led the hunt for him, Detective Chief Superintendent Vincent McFadden, was equally as damning, saying, he is a vicious, nasty killer. Of all the people I have dealt with, this man has got to be one of the worst. One of the worst indeed, eh? But perhaps the most notable condemnation of Duffy came from a reflection from Detective Superintendent Charles Farquhar, 
who'd led the hunt for the killer of Alison Day, and who was quoted as saying, There was one other extraordinary thing. If there was one thing his victims remembered about the man who attacked them, it was the description of his eyes. The first time I saw him, I knew he had to be the one. He really did have the most cold, penetrating, laser-like stare I had ever seen. You could see the evil in that man's eyes. He asked Duffy about poor Allison, strangled and thrown into a freezing river. He said, It's fate. If she was meant to die that moment, then she had to die. If I had killed these women, then it was predetermined from the day I was born. He was without doubt one of the most evil characters in the history of British justice. Duffy is a walking advertisement for the return of the death penalty. This is the type of person we're talking about here with John Francis Duffy. Monster is the only word. Following Duffy's conviction, there were criticisms raised in the press, most notably as to why Duffy had been bailed on two occasions, and recorder Peter Archer QC, who had bailed him following the assault on his wife, faced the brunt of this, not helping himself by claiming that he simply could not remember the case. Now it's easy to criticise with the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? And the £3 million inquiry was reviewed to see if any glaring opportunities were missed during the investigation that could have caught Duffy beforehand. Ultimately though, Detective Chief Superintendent McFadden defended his team, saying, The right man was put into the system. It was picked through and it was shaken until he came out. I would attack anyone who said there was a little bright reflective arrow pointing in Duffy's direction. Now reading up on the investigation, you have to properly realise what a massive inquiry this was, spanning years and three forces. The amount of information you're talking about was immense, and some of the work really was remarkable. And there was still more to come too, much more, because we've not forgotten about him, Taller was still out there. So, the shorter man, Duffy, began his life sentence as a Category A prisoner, at first in Wormwood Scrubs, before moving to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight, and by 1995 being incarcerated in Whitemore Prison in Cambridgeshire. He made no attempt to appeal either his conviction or his sentence, and maintained his amnesia claim visited fortnightly by his siblings or parents, who were by that time coming to terms with what this son had done, if he ever could like. Personally, I think I would disown any child of mine who would do such things. Reportedly also, Duffy was a model prisoner, accepting of his sentence. Now, it was in March 1995 that an officer named Les Bolland comes into our tale. Although he'd been involved in the Trinity Inquiry, as office manager on the Operation Swallow strand of it. He, like several other still-serving officers who had worked on Trinity, had never forgotten that there was another man still out there who had been Duffy's accomplice in a large number of the attacks, and of course, the resolution of the Anne Locke case had been unsatisfactory for police. By 1995, Bolland was a detective superintendent, and as by that rank not having the constraints of requiring permission to initiate an inquiry, decided to visit Duffy to see whether a few years in prison had changed his outlook, and he perhaps may be willing to talk. So on the 7th of April 1995, 
he visited John Francis Duffy for the first time, who had agreed to see him, perhaps out of curiosity, perhaps through boredom. After ascertaining that he'd not been visited beforehand by any other officers, mindful of jeopardising any current investigations that may exist, Detective Superintendent Bolland explained to him that he wanted to ascertain the truth about what happened to Anne Locke, to find out who his co-offender had been, and eventually to bring Duffy on board to ultimately give evidence against him. Offering him nothing in return for doing so, no writing off of offences or any prisoner recategorization, Bolland told him that he also wanted him to admit every other offence he'd ever committed, explaining too that should he admit any offences for which he was not already convicted, then he would be further prosecuted. Sounds a shit deal that does, doesn't it? But Bolland was simply being honest, and told Duffy that he was only interested in the truth. This was him starting as he would go on, he'd always be honest with him, and that he had plenty of time for him to think it over. He then asked Duffy was he in a position to help, and did he want to? Now Duffy had plenty of time on his hands too, his had just been made into a whole life tariff, but he didn't take too long to think about it, he answered that he would like to help, but still persisted with his amnesia story, and stated that he feared to talk about his offending would be upsetting and psychologically damaging for him, claiming he would need psychological help to counsel him when he recollected his offences. Over the next few months then came a series of visits where he built up a rapport with Detective Superintendent Bolland, and although he still persisted with the amnesia story, he had admitted that he was responsible for the offences for which he was in prison, though still giving no details, claiming that he was worried about the effect on him when recalling the vicious and despicable offences. Although Detective Superintendent Bolland had requested that he be given counselling to assist him in his confessions, Duffy was not offered any, and when the visits went around in circles, advancing very little because of this, the visits were eventually stopped, but with a note added to Duffy's file that should he ever begin talking about his crimes, Hertfordshire police were to be informed. That was it then, until late 1997, when a new psychologist, Dr Jenny Cutler, started work at Whitemore Prison, and shortly afterwards, a prison officer suggested to her that Duffy needed individual counselling, as he had reported having recurring and violent nightmares, including one in which a girl ran along a canal towpath, the circumstances of Alison Day's murder, which he'd been convicted of. Duffy had agreed to this, and beginning what was to become a series of meetings with Dr Cutler, who had told him things could go at his own pace, admitted at their first interview that although he had amnesia, he had initially faked this, which of course he had, hadn't he? But Dr Cutler came to believe that following his arrest, the psychological stress Duffy had been under had genuinely triggered some sort of mental shutdown in him, and he had genuinely become disassociated from what he'd done. As the interviews progressed, Duffy came to trust Dr Cutler completely, and she was happy to let him just talk about whatever, not haranguing him about his crimes, so he began discussing his early life with her, and by the time he'd arrived in his recollections of his first day of secondary school, some 27 years before, it was here that he began referring often to a person he named Another Kid, or The Other Kid, at one point clearly stating, The Other Kid's a Friend. 
So as he continued talking, over the sessions, Dr. Cutler came to realise that the other kid, the friend, was someone Duffy had committed his offences with. Although sources claim that Dr. Cutler had no knowledge of the details of Duffy's crimes. Now I have a bit of an issue there personally with this claim because if you're sitting down in an interview setting with a prisoner on a whole life tariff, surely you're going to know beforehand exactly what that prisoner has done, if anything, to ascertain any risk to yourself there may possibly be and to prepare for such an interview. If they're not to be read, then what's the point of keeping files on prisoners? I find it hard to believe she had no idea whatsoever of the details of Duffy's past crimes unless the file was seriously redacted, incomplete or incorrect and it's crossed my mind as to whether this claim is merely sensationalism and artistic license because it makes for a more dramatic tale. I find it totally strange to be honest. Anyway, once aware that he was referring to an accomplice but again claiming to know little detail about Duffy's offences Dr. Cutler claims to have assumed the accomplice had too been tried and imprisoned and had casually, innocently, asked Duffy which prison he was in only to be told, he isn't in prison, never has been, he's free. Informing Duffy that she was bound to report this revelation to authorities, Dr. Cutler then saw the attachment to Duffy's file to contact Hertfordshire Police should he ever discuss his crimes and had so contacted Detective Superintendent Bolland. Now he would not provide her with material to assist the council in sessions, conscious that if Duffy's confessions did result in a prosecution for the accomplice, then a defence lawyer may be able to argue that he'd been schooled on the details, and so the confessions that Dr Cutler was to hear from Duffy were received with a lack of foresight. He went on to discuss the other kid, who he was eventually to name David, often in his sessions, revealing more and more about things they'd done together, describing the life that the two friends had had over the years since the school days. Such close friends had they become from the off, that they'd even each made a pact at school to always look after the other. A pact that had continued when they began to offend together, that had become that if one of them was caught and the other wasn't, the one losing their liberty would maintain a wall of silence. To never grass was how he put it. And up to this point, this is exactly what Duffy had done. But as the years ticked by, and perhaps because of the nightmares he was having, perhaps because he was a bit bored, perhaps even because he wanted to brag in some way about his defences, he was now willing to talk, any childhood bond or oath being long forgotten. Dr Cutler herself felt as the interview sessions progressed that Duffy was seeking to unburden himself to ease his conscience, finally at a state where he could comprehend the magnitude of his actions. Her notes from the sessions reflected, Has mixed feelings about David. It worries him he may still be offending. Thinks he should pay for what he's done. Now I shall save all of my thoughts ref the entire case for the final episode of the arc. On this point, will certainly be one of them. By June 1998, Duffy's sessions with Dr Cutler had come far enough that he had now agreed that he would actually begin to make full, proper, detailed admissions to police. And so, under great secrecy, arrangements were made by Detective Superintendent Bolland to bring Duffy from Whitemore Prison to a small, remote Hertfordshire police station 
for a week of interviewing to take place. Reportedly, Duffy was horrendously travel sick on the journey here, no longer used to travelling, having not been in a vehicle for many years, and when arrived, requested that whilst he would agree to be interviewed and would be as helpful as he could be, it would be done around a list of World Cup matches that Duffy wanted to watch uninterrupted, which was acquiesced to. When the interviews began, each conducted under caution, over the course of them, Duffy was to prove talkative and went on to confess to several further offences of rape, offences from police archives being put to him to try and jog his memory. But crucially, he was to admit two other things also, that were to lead to countless other weeks of interviewing. Aside from affirming his culpability in the crimes he'd been imprisoned for ten years earlier, one of the further rapes that he now admitted was that of 29-year-old Anne Locke, though he still denied her murder. The other thing he was to admit to to police was what they already knew, that in many of the offences he had been joined by another man, in each of the three murders as well, who he was then to name. A man who coincidentally, due to a set of unconnected events, completely separately from Duffy's confession, was almost at the very same time to come to police attention once again and which we shall find out about next time around, because that as ever is a perfect place to leave things for this time, I'm sure you'll agree. Well, you probably don't like, but that's where we're leaving it anyway. We are rumbling on towards the conclusion of the thriller arc by now, and I have a feeling that the next part will be a hell of a lot longer. There is still so much to this tale. You may even see why I've opted to call it thriller next time around. And as much as I wish that it would, because it's what I've seemed to have lived for months right now, it seems, it won't create itself, so I'm off to crack on with it right now. Look out for that part coming soon. Should anyone wish to discuss the episode, The Man with the Laser Eyes, or the entire thriller arc to date, then you can do so in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group as ever, or through any of the show's social media links I'm always about to have a gas with. With that, I'm out of here. I thank you all very kindly for joining me here today for the episode. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.